Thank you so much. Um, thanks to the Federalist Society for convening this and uh, to Chloe for inviting me to moderate. Uh, this is just the kind of event that I'm really excited to see from the National Security Law Center perspective here at UVA. Um, national security today is deeply inf inflected with questions about new technologies. National security is no longer just uh, about kinetic action on the battlefields. It's no longer just about human spies penetrating foreign ministries. So much that we're worried about today is driven by new technologies. Um, and in that um, uh, ecosystem, companies have a huge role to play. Uh, they are targets of attacks. Uh, they can act as proxies for states in these new kinds of warfare where we see information really being prominent. Um, they are defenders of the U.S.'s critical infrastructure. So uh, cyber operations are often drawn out as the most prominent example of these changes. Um, we're also now seeing threats to the U.S. national security, though, in things like supply chains, uh, where mil our military is buying things that may have hidden back doors in them. Uh, we're seeing it in, in bulk collection of data by adversaries. Um, and we're seeing it in election interference, uh, in, in, in part the hack and dump operations, manipulation of social media. So this brings us to today's topic, where we're going to be talking about TikTok as a threat to US national security. And we're really fortunate to have two experts with us today to help work through why the US government has determined that TikTok poses a national security threat, uh, what the US government is doing about it, what the legal frameworks are through which the US is acting, and hopefully tell us a little bit about what they think lies ahead. So let me introduce the two speakers. Uh, we have Charles Flint, uh, who serves as Chief of Staff for US Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee. Uh, he advises the Senator, Senator on a range of issues, including foreign threats, data privacy, uh, and content uh, moderation on platforms. Before he started working on the Hill eight years ago, he was an assistant state's attorney in Florida, where he prosecuted misdemeanors, felonies, and crimes against children. He also has a private practice background in insurance defense litigation. Uh, Mr. Flint graduated from Albany Law School in 2004 and is a member of the Federalist Society. Sarah Harris is a partner in Williams and Connolly's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. She's going to be arguing Salinas versus U.S. Railroad Retirement Board before the Supreme Court uh, in coming weeks. Uh, from 2017 to 2019, she was a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department. Uh, as many of you know, that's the office charged with reviewing the legality of executive orders and with advising the executive branch on a variety of national security issues. Mrs. Harris graduated magna cum laude from Harvard Law School holds an MPhil and a PhD from Cambridge in International Relations. She clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas and has also authored a book on the CIA's relationship with anti-communist intellectuals in the Cold War. Um, uh, Chuck is gonna start us off by discussing the national security risks posed by TikTok uh, and say a little bit about its relationship with the Chinese government. Uh, and maybe also some of what the executive uh, and Congress have done in the past few months to address those risks. Sarah is then gonna put those issues into a legal framework. She'll talk a little bit about IEPA. Uh, she'll talk about the CFIUS review process, the litigation that has ensued, and maybe some of the implications of the potential bans. 
So before I turn it over to Chuck, Chuck I'd like to just remind the audience um, to please submit questions uh, via the Q&A function at the bottom. And I will uh, ask questions to the, um, to the speakers once they've uh, each talked a little bit to lay the background. Um, so uh, please feel free to use the Q&A function. So with that, let me turn it over to Chuck to get us started. Great, Professor, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate that. And I'll start off talking about TikTok, just giving some background in general about it, and then moving on to what people who support TikTok say and kind of what some of the, the other arguments are on the other side, and then the national security implications. So just to start out, I assume a lot of people know what TikTok is, but if you haven't used TikTok or you're not sure, TikTok's a video sharing app, and it makes music videos. Uh, you can shoot out a quick video. There's music in the background. It's sort of this lighthearted fun. A lot of people like it. You see a lot of people uh, in the music industry now, I believe, who are on it. So it's, it's become very popular. It's been downloaded over 175 million times in the United States and over 1 billion times globally. And for perspective, the population of the United States is over 330 million. So those downloads represent approximately 52% of our population, assuming that has been downloaded more than once by uh, you know, an individual. That's a, a fairly significant number. TikTok's parent company is ByteDance, which is headquartered in Beijing. It was founded in 2012. And ByteDance has a valuation of roughly $75 billion. Uh, TikTok, TikTok's valuation, excuse me, Evaluation is right around 50 billion. So both very successful. I believe TikTok might be uh, China's most successful technology company. Moving into the, the type of information that TikTok collects. So TikTok will collect your browsing history, search history. It'll collect your location data. It can collect financial data. You'll actually enter your credit card information in there to go ahead sometimes and buy gift emojis. It can collect your phone number. It can collect your social contacts that you have. There, uh, there are allegations in some class action litigation that it even collects biometric data. And I believe it's also alleged that the TikTok app will start collecting data before you've even created an account. And that's really important. So once TikTok is downloaded, it starts collecting information on you. And that's fairly significant. That's part of the reason the federal government doesn't like it. Uh, if you think about the location data, the fact that you could track a federal government employee or a federal, a federal contractor is something that you know, causes a lot of concern amongst national security experts. Now, I want to move on to the storage aspect. So TikTok has two servers. Its main server is located in Virginia. They will tell you and swear up and down that all the data stays in the United States. They don't transfer any of it over to China. Uh, the Chinese government never gets its hand on any of it, and they say that if the Chinese government asked them, that they would refuse. Uh, I'd also note they've got a backup server in Singapore. Now, there are allegations, and this, these allegations also exist in some class action litigation, I believe, in uh, California. It's part of a group of parents that are suing TikTok, saying they collected the biometric data, which would be facial recognition, perhaps fingerprints of children, and so forth. Um, that that data does go to China via third parties. So I just want to throw that out there. Those are some of the allegations that exist. What's interesting is that TikTok itself says that we don't share data with the Chinese, but they have been careful to say that they have not only the ability to do it, 
and I really want people to listen to this part, they say that it would actually be legal for them to do so. And their, their attorneys have admitted that in litigation. So they don't do it, but if they wanted to, it would be legal. So just, just think about that. Uh, as far as pro-TikTok arguments, I'll lump them in pro-TikTok, TikTok supporters. There have been a couple interesting articles recently. There was one in Forbes on July 11th. It was written by Zach Doffman, and he quotes some national security experts in there. And the, the tone of the article, and I believe the actual title is, you know, should I delete TikTok? And he sort of comes down in the middle of it and says, it's really an open question that there is no proven or credible concrete evidence that data is going to the Chinese government. There are some experts that are quoted in there that say, hey, this is a bunch of bluster. Uh, you know, why would why would ByteDance, uh, TikTok want to risk a good thing here and, and kind of trample on privacy rights? CNN had another article, uh, I believe it was written in July, uh, from a and there was a national security expert who was also quoted in there, and and he said you have a right to be suspicious of the Chinese, but that TikTok wouldn't really be a useful intelligence tool for them. There was a Wall Street Journal article uh, on July seventh, which actually has a quote from a guy named John Callis, who's a senior uh, technology fellow at the ACLU, and. He, he takes a different approach. He says that the Chinese apps are among the most abusive and that, you know, people are right to be concerned about them. So I would just point people in kind of both directions, uh, you know, trying to be fair. The people that are pro, you know, TikTok kind of say this, it's not a big deal. And then on the other side, there are you know, people that are very concerned about it. And, and so now I'm going to tell you why I think you should be concerned from, you know, my perspective, what I hear. Um, some of the contacts I've had, and I'll start out by saying this, the United States military has banned it. Wells Fargo has banned it, along with some other private companies. Uh, Amazon thought about doing it. Um, and the country of India has banned it completely. Last uh, Friday, in preparation for this conversation, I had uh, a talk, and I've talked with him a couple times, uh, with General Robert Spaulding, who wrote the book Stealth War, and he's a former senior director at the uh, Hudson Institute. Some of you have maybe heard of him, and he's the author of the book Stealth War. And, you know, I was curious, you know, a lot of times what people say is, oh, this data, it's, it's not harmful, you know, who cares about my browsing history, my search history, and, and this and that. And General Spaulding, I think, summed it up really well. He said, the point is that China thinks, or people think that China has no reason to do anything to them, but they have your information, and if it becomes necessary for them to do so, they will do it. They will act. And what they're doing is they're learning an awful lot about your profile. They're developing a personality profile on you with this data that they, they're collecting. And in one you know, separate snapshot, it's not much, but when you aggregate the data, as Professor Deeks mentioned, data aggregation and collection, well then their algorithms, which are you know, artificial intelligence, they can sift through all of this and they can learn a lot about your personality. They can learn about your relationships. They can learn about your likes and your dislikes. They can learn an awful lot about you. And, and some people will say, okay, well, what does that look like? And I'll give you a couple of examples. Maybe uh, somebody decides they want to file a fraudulent tax return on your behalf because they've got your financial data. Maybe all of a sudden your credit rating gets dinged a little bit and you can't obtain financing to purchase a home. 
Okay, that's what this information is used for. It's used to blackmail, it's used to coerce. And I'm going to give you a very concrete example right now. In June of 2018, there was a Marriott employee working out of Omaha, Nebraska, and he used the official Marriott account for whom he worked to like a tweet from a Tibetan uh, separatist group. The Tibetan, or excuse me, the Tibetan separatist group had simply tweeted thanking Marriott for listing Tibet as separate from China. And so because he liked that tweet from the account, that triggered an onslaught of calls to Marriott. They actually got a call from a travel agency over in Shanghai. And in two days, that employee was fired. And I think that speaks to just how uh, meticulous the Chinese are. That was a tweet. They don't even have Twitter in China, but they still watch and they still follow. Um, I want to talk just a little bit, you know, about some of the, the cultural differences. Look, war in China and war in the U.S. are viewed very differently. War in the United States is viewed as applying force to achieve a political outcome. And I would expand that to not just the U.S., but the West. But in China, politics is war. That's, that's how they view it. Their system is different. And the Internet allows them to conduct this war on a global scale. Think about that. So, you know, you look at that, you look at the, the difference between the systems. Um, I would point you to a couple of other things, too. China has passed uh, a law, June 28th of 2017, a national security law that says any, anybody who's a foreign intelligence officer there can designate a company or a person to collect intelligence for the Chinese government. Any person. Now you can be in China or you could be abroad. You could be a, you know, a business, you could be an individual. So that's one thing I would raise. The other thing that I would raise is that just a couple of weeks ago, uh, President Xi Jinping said that every company in China in the private sector has to maintain a certain presence of Communist Party employees, every single one. So TikTok has said, hey, we have no influence. There's no Communist Party influence here. But now we know that that can't be true because based on what Xi Jinping has said, they're going to have to have that. And part of the reason that they have to have that is because in China, everything is one. Everything is uniform. That's what they want. They even want dissent to be harmonious. And so in, in, I'm going back to what Xi Jinping said here. Part of his reason for doing this is because they want to keep the company's moral and ideological direction in line with the Communist Party. And that's something that would never happen in the United States. It would actually be impossible. Uh, I mean, think about the government, uh, you know, calling up uh, Google or Apple and saying, hey, you're going to have to pick 50 government employees just so we can make sure that you guys are, uh, you know, doing the right thing. And, and I think that's that's important to know um, that I sometimes hear about the tech companies in the United States, you know, don't they do the same thing as these companies? And just remember, the nexus between China and their companies is, is strong. I mean, you could almost say sometimes they're one and the same. And that's, that's very concerning. Uh, you know, who are you dealing with over here? Uh, are you dealing with a private company? Or are you dealing with somebody who's perhaps, you know, an agent of, uh, of the Chinese government? And I don't want to be, you know, too, you know, too accusatorial, but you know, I'm just referring to facts uh, in making that statement. And I think that's a, something that's fair to surmise. Um, it's been written that you know, China is looking to create some type of a, uh, a digital silk 
road. And I know we're not talking about uh, 5G and so forth, but they have plans to, you know, kind of get into every country. And whether that's through technology companies, whether it's uh, through Huawei and, and Belt Road, um, if you understand parts of their history, you know that one thing that China thinks a lot about and their strategists do is strategic encirclement. They actually have a board game called Wei Chi, and it, it's kind of an advanced version of checkers. And one of the ways that you can win is just by, by surrounding your opponent. And, and sometimes you can look at the board, and unless you're a real expert, you won't even know who won. So the mindsets are completely different. And I would just, going back to what Professor Deeks said, you know, I want to bring it back around now. That's why it's so important to pay attention to this, that the, the art of subtlety is what they do best. And your data, you know, in a, in a snapshot, uh, going on there one time and doing something might not mean a whole lot. But if you're on TikTok routinely, believe me, they're building a profile of you. And I'll tell you something, I, I was a victim of, uh, of hacking of OPM back in 2015, and the Chinese uh, were alleged to have done that. And I, it was great. I mean, I got free uh, credit monitoring for a year, and fortunately nothing happened. But they said that they were trying to create a Facebook uh, type of uh, system for government employees. So this isn't the first time. It's not a first rodeo with this. And I'll just go ahead and I will stop there and now allow, you know, let Sarah go ahead and give more of a, a legal breakdown. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you so much, Chuck, and thanks so much for having me, UVA. Um, you know, it's really great to appear even virtually. You you guys have an incredibly robust national security program, um, which is really terrific, and uh, also a very robust Federalist Society, uh, which was a huge part of my law school experience in terms of just informing my informing myself about issues and having a fun exchange of ideas on some pretty pressing topics. So what I'd like to do is kind of pick up from where Chuck ended and start with the, the questions confronting any president, um, our president, but any other one too. Uh, you're the president and you are concerned with TikTok because you know to take the concerns listed in recent orders at least, um, you think that the ability to sort of um, sweep up a massive amount of personal identifier information opens U.S. citizens to potential blackmail um, and also potential corporate espionage. It's just a huge amount of very manipulable data that allows um, any foreign power, and especially the Chinese who, as Chuck mentioned, are very sophisticated in this area, to um, leverage that data both to target individuals and also to attempt to influence sort of public discourse in the United States at large. So you're pretty worried, even though at first glance it might just seem like it's really fun people doing karaoke or something. Um, I'd like to sort of go through the tools at your disposal if you're in that situation and you want to mitigate the threats that you see with respect to this data collection. So there are kind of two that Professor Deeks flagged, um, the CFIUS process and AIPA. And there's some overlap between those powers in the TikTok case and in general. But in simple terms, CFIUS is something that focuses on transactions. And AIPA is a power that focuses on foreign entities and just whatever sort of property they have that is potentially subject to US jurisdiction. So I'm gonna kind of first walk through what these powers entail and then talk about how the administration has deployed them vis-a-vis um, -vis TikTok and then the explosion of litigation that has ensued and what might happen next. So let me start with CFIUS, which is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. 
That is a nine-member interagency group, the Treasury Department's helm, um, and its job under a, the, um, a statute called the 1988 Exxon Florio Amendment is to review all mergers and acquisitions involving any foreign person, whereby the transaction could create foreign control over a U.S. business. CFIUS ultimately reports to the president, who makes final decisions in some of the reviews. So as, as in the way of many agencies, uh, CFIUS defines its jurisdiction very, very broadly. Um, and Congress has actually sort of encouraged CFIUS to do so with recent amendments. Um, so the particular focus now um, of the statutory scheme and of CFIUS itself is really on foreign access to personal identifying information. That used to be a sort of informal focus of the process and recent legislative amendments have made it a very explicit focus of the process. So what usually happens in terms of CFIUS being able to exercise its review powers over mergers and acquisitions is um, you're a foreign company, you want to acquire a US business, and let's say involves something remotely sensitive. So obvious things would be computing technology, um, web communications, or like even you wanna buy a gold mine that just happens to be a mile away from a US military installation. Um, the parties are very well advised at this point because of how many CFIUS cases there have been to proactively file for CFIUS review before they conclude this transaction. That is really the usual rule of CFIUS practice. If your transaction involves a Chinese company and it's obtaining any kind of stake in a US business, even a minority stake that gives it really any kind of access or rights, um, it is much better to file. And the reason is if you don't file, CFIUS has um, infinite and indefinite jurisdiction to look at your transaction retroactively. Uh, and that's something that most people don't like, <laughs> at least if you're a private company and you want to move forward with your business, uh, because you could all of a sudden be thrust into a national security review where a merger you concluded five years ago, 10 years ago, however many years ago, is potentially unwound by the U.S. government. And obviously, the U.S. government is also probably Less favorable, less inclined to look at your transaction favorably, given that you didn't tell them about it. Um, so there have been instances where people rolled the dice, um, and CFIUS tried to review retroactively. One interesting example um, is the app Grinder, which is a dating app. And so you might think, okay, who cares? It's a dating app, um, but Grinder collects a massive amount of personal identifying information and is also incredibly useful if you are someone who wants to use information pinpoint potential users, and then, for instance, blackmail them um, based on other information you are able to obtain about their personal lives. Like, for instance, that they are federal contractors, that they're, you know, you, I think you can imagine the, the potential that dating apps might offer if you are someone sort of interested in that angle. Um, so CFIUS retroactively reviewed Chinese investments and ordered Chinese investors to divest from Grindr because of that concern. Uh, the upshot is if you file in advance, um, CFIUS can clear the transaction and you're safe after that. You have predictability of knowing uh, that you will not be suddenly hailed before CFIUS and have your transaction under this sort of review. Um, what does the review entail? There's kind of three usual outcomes. One is that, the, that CFIUS can kind of clear the transaction without adding any conditions to it. Uh, that's pretty unlikely for transactions involving Chinese companies that involve any sort of personal identifying information. But it could happen if it's, you know, just a really, really plain vanilla deal and there's just no risk for whatever reason. 
CFIUS can also negotiate something called a mitigation agreement with the parties. Um, and so what happens there is the parties go back and forth with different um, government representatives from the different agencies comprising CFIUS. And it's sort of a, it's almost like a game of battleship where <laughs> we get different questions from different governmental agencies. And if you're in private practice representing one of the parties, it can kind of give you a sense of what the government's concerns likely are. Of course, all those concerns are based on classified information. So you're certainly not gonna get your hands on that. But the process there involves sort of talking through with the government, um, what will the what will CFIUS be able to live with um, and what will the parties be able to live with? And at the conclusion of that, the mitigation agreement often involves, for instance, no foreign nationals in particularly sensitive US facilities, no foreign nationals having access to personal identifying information, um, restrictions on how foreign nationals can exercise control over the company, stuff like that. Uh, the agreement lasts forever and it often involves monitoring and inspections. And so if you violate the conditions, CFIUS uh, can have the right to sort of jump back in again. Um, and finally, if there is no way to mitigate those risks in the judgment of um, the CFIUS agencies, CFIUS can recommend to the president that the president block or unwind the merger or acquisition, depending on if it's prospective or retrospective, and the president can do so. Uh, he needs to make a determination that there is a threat to national security that requires that action. And but after that, you know, that's kind of the end of the day for that particular deal. And these are pretty significant powers because they combine the president's existing foreign affairs powers with a pretty substantial delegation of commerce of Congress's uh, commerce authority. One drawback of them is, of course, they are very zeroed in on the transaction writ large, uh, but with respect to the transaction, that is a pretty good amount of power. For a long time, the main rule of CFIUS practice was that there is no judicial review of CFIUS. Um, so it looked like a very black box, box process to a lot of people. That did change in 2013 when the DC Circuit held in a case called Rawls involving a Chinese investor that was very unhappy to have an investment unwound by CFIUS. The due process um, requires CFIUS to at least inform a party of unclassified information upon which CFIUS is relying in order to sort of hint at CFIUS's concerns in a more sort of tangible way. And there has to be an opportunity for the party to respond before the president takes action. Uh, but in practice, that's not really a big hurdle for the government to clear because, well, first of all, it's not too difficult to produce that kind of information. And second of all, the cost of doing so is low because, again, the government's not being forced to disclose the classified information, which is really the bulk of what the government is going to be relying on in a lot of these cases. So that's CFIUS. Um, the other tool that I talked about at the outset is AIPA. AIPA is a statute that delegates to the president very broad authority to regulate foreign entities' property that's subject to U.S. jurisdiction. And it, it's that power is triggered by the president's declaration of a national emergency. The statutory language involves um, empowering the president to address a, quote, unusual and extraordinary threat, uh, which has its source in whole or in part outside the United States, and the threat has to be to national security, foreign policy, or the U.S. economy. And again, the president has to then declare the national emergency. And then if the president does so, the president is empowered to regulate, direct and compel, nullify, void, et cetera, et cetera, many other verbs uh, pertaining to any transfer of or dealing in, in or in exercising any right to power or privilege with respect to um, any property in which any foreign country or any national of a foreign country has any interest 
with respect to the property that's uh, subject to U.S. jurisdiction. So that's a lot of verbs, a lot of very broad verbs, a lot of very comprehensive verbs. And what all those verbs do, again, is allow the president to regulate whatever property belongs to a foreign national or a foreign country uh, that the U.S. can sort of exercise power over. Uh, now, Congress can, of course, exercise some supervision over this power. Congress, for instance, can terminate emergency declarations um, through fast track procedures, but that does not happen super often. And then I'll flag just two relevant exceptions to AIPA because this is sort of a preview of discussion to come. One exception is for personal communications. So one thing the president cannot do under AIPA is to regulate or prohibit directly or indirectly any um, personal communication, be it over the postal service, uh, telephone call or anything else. Um, and a personal communication means something that doesn't involve a transfer of something of value. And then the second exception that's relevant to our later discussion of TikTok is the informational materials exception, which is the president can't regulate or prohibit um, importing or exporting um, any information or informational materials like, you know, books or posters or films or stuff like that. And it doesn't matter if those are commercial or not, you just can't, the president can't um, use IEPA to target that type of property. So those are the tools writ large. Applied to TikTok, um, the administration has kind of pursued a belt and suspenders approach that combines incentives to try to leave TikTok with a US owner at the end of the day while mitigating the risks that TikTok poses in the meantime. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a tricky situation. Um, I think the belt and suspenders approach, if you look at it sort of writ large, might seem like something that reduces illegal risks. Um, but it also has given, I think, some of the, the challengers some opportunities to knock out particular pieces of the strategy one by one. Um, and we'll see how that kind of turns out. CFIUS is the sort of lights out option. Um, it's a complicated tool for the administration at this point because the whole, the whole issue is that ByteDance acquired what became TikTok, um, a, a company called Musical.ly in 2017. And then a year after that, um, Musical.ly merged uh, with TikTok and took all of the US uh, users' personal identifier information over to the TikTok platform. Um, and there was no CFIUS review of that transaction back in 2017. The companies didn't file, CFIUS didn't do anything at that point. And uh, frankly, I'm not sure why, I'm sure there are lots of good reasons why, um, they are almost certainly classified. But suffice it to say, members of Congress started um, raising questions about this in 2019. And shortly afterwards, CFIUS announced that it was going to retroactively start review. So that process involved the sort of back and forth that I talked about earlier, um, in which by dance and the government sort of talked about, are there mitigation strategies, yes or no? And I know this from reading the pleadings and the ensuing litigation uh, that this apparently happened. Um, but the upshot of it was, Scythius was not satisfied. Um, and the president in August 2020 um, made a determination that national security requires ByteDance to divest itself of all property or assets used to enable uh, TikTok's operation in the US and specifically has to give up all data obtained from US users. And that has to happen within 90 days. Scythius can impose a 30 day extension on top of that if it wants. Um, and to remedy the situation, Scythius says that the TikTok operations have to be transferred to US companies. So a lot of suitors have lined up. And the best case end game, I think, is a US from the US government's vantage is a US company steps up and sort of solves this issue. 
Um, then there's the IEPA piece of this, which offers the administration some more tailored options. Um, as, a, as, as if you recall the description of all those verbs, um, IEPA gives the president lots of leeway in taking regulatory actions regarding the foreign entity's property. Uh, the president has made the requisite national security determination and then had the Commerce Department um, come up with a list of specific transactions that were going to be subject to IEPA orders. So here, TikTok is the property that's being regulated. Um, and the various transactions that com the Commerce Department um, wanted to use IEPA to affect were included um, blocking any future downloads of the TikTok app. And that was supposed to start on September 27th. And then there are a lot of steps that were, are supposed to happen in November with respect to disabling the functionality of the TikTok app within the United States. So unsurprisingly, uh, TikTok was not pleased by this turn of events. Um, and both TikTok, the company, and groups of TikTok users have filed many, many lawsuits. There is litigation in the Central District of California. There is litigation in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. There is litigation in the um, District Court for the District of Columbia. And there are lots of other lawsuits out there that we, you know, it's just like, it's honestly like a viral video at this point, one could say. But I'll focus for now on the DDC suit because the District of uh, District of Columbia suit, because that's where the most immediate action has been happening. And I think it's kind of the most interesting from a, you know, what's going on from a legal standpoint. So on Sunday night, Judge Nichols, who's a recent uh, DDC appointee, issued a preliminary injunction um, in joining the administration from um, implementing the IEPA order that would have banned TikTok downloads. So in plain English, you can still download TikTok for now. That ruling was bad, very bad news for the government, um, possibly pretty unexpected news for the government because the premise of the preliminary injunction ruling is a pretty sweeping holding, holding suggesting that the president cannot actually regulate TikTok under IEPA. Um, how did Judge Nichols get to that conclusion? So if you remember the two IEPA exceptions I mentioned um, for personal communications and informational materials, um, his reasoning is both of those exceptions sort of describe TikTok. Um, TikTok, in his view, facilitates personal communications between users, and no one's getting money out of them necessarily. So he sees TikTok communications um, in the platform itself as therefore uh, a, an attempt to restrict personal communications. And um, similarly for informational materials, he views um, TikTok as facilitating the import or export of messages, which are sort of similar to telegraphs or you know, mail, which are the other things listed under this exception. And so a platform that facilitates that, um, he says would be under that exception too. Um, I don't have firm views on the scope of AIPA, um, you know, that I would <laughs> commit to forever, but my sort of initial reaction reading the opinion is, I'm not so sure that this is going to hold up to scrutiny um, for two reasons. I mean, first of all, I think you can ask a lot of questions about the level of generality that uh, debate that's going on with respect to, do you view TikTok in terms of its individual communications or do you view it as a platform? Um, and I'm not so sure that if you prohibit the use of a platform for communication, you are really targeting the communications themselves. It seems like a kind of disconnect between the text of AIPA, um, talking about specific personal or informational material or communications versus the whole range of things you can do on TikTok and the fact that it's a platform. Um, the government's brief, I thought, used a pretty ex 
effective example of a postal service. So like if China, for instance, established a postal service competitor in the United States and read all the mail, um, you wouldn't necessarily think that AIPA would prohibit the government from banning that sort of platform for communicating, even if the ancillary effect was particular people can't send stuff in the mail. Or other examples, I mean, you could take email services or something like Google, or you could take it even further and say an open access TV station wouldn't be subject to AIPA, no matter sort of how nefarious um, the usage of it, or even internet service providers, since you need the internet to, you know, send communications. Uh, so you can kind of see with a lot of hypotheticals pretty fast, um, a lot of questions about how, how broad is this exception really, um, and is there a disconnect between personal communications um, as something that you can't prohibit versus things that in any way facilitate personal communications or informational content. Uh, and the related concern I have is, I guess, I, I worry that Judge Nichols' reading blends together the personal communications and informational materials exceptions in a way that I don't know is textually consistent with AIPA. Um, they do seem separate. I mean, it seems like things that fall within the first exception would probably not necessarily fall within the second exception. But by looking at TikTok at the sort of platform level and saying some of the communications on TikTok will fall in one and some will fall in the other, so the whole platform falls under both, I think that kind of just exacerbates the level of generality problem that I, that I just talked about. So that's like the biggest and hottest AIPA challenge going on right now, but um, there are more. Uh, the other sort of questions that are lurking in the background of this litigation include, is there a First Amendment problem um, with prohibiting US users from communicating on their preferred platform? That's one of the sort of lurking questions in the case that's getting litigated pretty heavily. There are also due process challenges to AIPA um, involving the purported lack of information that the United States may or may not have disclosed regarding the basis for the president's determination and uh, whether due process requires the president to do more in this context. There's also um, a, a very you know, hot non-delegation challenge, which is a renewed subject of scholarly and litigant, litigants' interests um, ever since the Supreme Court's Bendy decision suggests that the Supreme Court might fight on this. Um, so the theory there is that AIPA involves an overbroad delegation of power to the president with absolutely no limiting principle. Um, and so I'm not sure that one has legs, but it's in the air. And then the final sort of thing about challenges is uh, we may see, we haven't seen yet, a challenge to the CFIUS divestment order itself. Now, I think that would be particularly hard given that you know CFIUS, CFIUS challenges are particularly difficult to litigate in light of the, even in light of the Rawls decision, um, but we'll see, that, may, that too may be on the horizon. My final thought before opening it up to questions is, if you take a step backward, I mean, what's the point of this litigation? I think for TikTok, it's it's really just to slow the process down. That's a main goal. Um, you know, the longer TikTok is able to be in business, uh, the, the the more the odds are that either the political dynamics will change um, and help TikTok out, or that it will be too difficult to find a US suitor to take over the company. And so there's just opportunities for maintaining the business in more like its present form. Um, and that there's also more opportunities for China, which is the other actor involved, of course, to say, uh, yeah, you're not divesting this, <laughs> sort of to take a sort of, uh, to, 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 to take actions on the Chinese end. Um, another ending, which is what I think the United States government is ideally hoping for, is that. 
um, U.S. companies end up acquiring TikTok before the various deadlines and the litigation moves out. And so everyone continues on their happy way, And um, but TikTok is under a more secure owner where the U.S. is controlling the sensitive information. Um, but I think the bigger picture in terms of litigation for me, like a separation of powers nerd, is there's also another dimension of risk that is now, I think, really highlighted by Judge Nichols' opinion, which is um, there might be a happy ending at the end of the day, but the risk now is also that U.S. courts are going to cut back on the president's authority under AIPA and CFIUS in ways that could have pretty negative effects for presidential power in future cases. So that is yet another dimension of uh, risk that's kind of interesting in this set of cases to me. All right, so with that, um, I would love to hear questions from everyone else. And again, thanks for having me. Uh, Chuck and Sarah, thank you so much. You've given us uh, a lot of information on this. Um, I like how you ended your uh, comment about presidential power, Sarah, spoken like a true OLC former attorney. Um, there are a couple questions in the chat, and I also had uh, a question uh, about the Oracle deal. So, um, Sarah, you mentioned uh, sort of in passing where it looks like this is headed. Um, I wonder if you and or Chuck have views about um, what kind of TikTok deal should satisfy the administration on the one hand um, and should satisfy Congress uh, on the other if we think that Congress has a role to, to play here? So uh, there's been some reporting that the, uh, the, the Oracle Walmart deal may not actually solve the security issues that, that Chuck identified. So I wonder if you could um, share your views about whether you're optimistic if that, that the deal will happen uh, what a satisfying deal would look like from a national security perspective. And maybe also if you could say a little bit, if you know, um, China's role here and whether China uh, will be the spoiler uh, on this by blocking um, the transfer of any uh, TikTok algorithms. Um, Chuck, can we start with you? Sure. I believe believe that 100% divestment is the only acceptable solution to this. Sarah made a really good point when she was talking about TikTok uh, potentially dragging this on. That's, that's a very common sort of Chinese strategy that they've used over the years. Uh, they will wait if conditions are not favorable until they can kind of get an upper hand or just a better hand to play themselves. Uh, and maybe that would come if, if there were a different administration, maybe it would come with different members of Congress. Uh, but, you know, they know that we've got an election coming up. Uh, president is up for re-election, members of the Senate, members of the House. And so maybe there's a way for them to kind of shift some of the thinking on this. But given the security risks, I don't believe that anything less than pure 100 percent divestment and decoupling uh, would solve the problem. And I'd be happy to turn it over to Sarah. Sure. So I guess my, this will also be like a typical, um, perhaps government lawyer response, which is, or former government lawyer at least, which is, um, I don't know whether or not the Oracle um, or Microsoft options would in fact mitigate the specific national security risks for a couple of reasons. One, like I, I have not seen the classified information with respect to the nature of the threat. Um, and two, I think when we talk about the shorthand of minority ownership, or we're sort of talking about what the structure of the deal would look like and partial investment would look like, um, 
that may also be the tip of the iceberg in terms of what an actual agreement would look like. That's sort of the shorthand that you might see in the press, but I would suspect that it would not just be sort of partial divestment. It would almost certainly involve partial divestment plus a bunch of other conditions that are much more tailored to personal identifier information that are just like not super interesting sound bites for a headline in the newspaper. And so I don't know. Um, I do think that Chuck's response is the sentiment that I sense a lot of members of Congress feel. And so the political angle is also pretty important, which is um, there are a lot of you know case studies in Scythia's history in which Scythia itself may not have paid attention to a deal or may have agreed to something. And then Congress afterwards um, raises very serious concerns. Um, and that kind of public pressure can effectively um, cause the actors involved in the deal to walk away at the end regardless. And so, you know, that's actually what happened with the famous Dubai Ports um, situation in 2006, where um, a Dubai-owned entity was going to take over a lot of the United States ports, as the name perhaps suggests. Um, Cepheus didn't do anything, but members of Congress were extremely upset about it, and the deal ultimately got scuttled. So I wouldn't underestimate the role that um, politics and public pressure are going to play, I guess is what I would say <laughs> to wrap it up. And what will China do? I mean, I again, um, I think all options are in the table. I mean, this is, TikTok case is kind of an interesting microcosm for what's going on more broadly in US-China relations right now. There is a lot of um, power plays, I think. Both, both sides are testing each other to see how far they're going to go. Um, and I think from the US side, there's an effort to sort of um, convey that the US is much less willing uh, to tolerate Chinese companies uh, exploiting personal identifying information. Um, and I think this coincides with a lot more uh, aggressive and public prosecutions of um, instances of Chinese corporate espionage too. So on the US side, I think there is a real effort to crack down. And on the Chinese side, there's also sort of a corresponding reaction of um, not wanting to, not wanting to sort of capitulate. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think the Chinese government is incredibly interested in using all levers at its disposal to try to undermine the U.S. approach. Great, thanks. Can I, can I have just one more thing to that? I think just one, something historically that would be important to point out to people Look, China became a member of the World Trade Organization back in 2001. They were granted permanent status. And when you do that, you say you're going to be a reliable, good faith trading partner. And since then, it has not stopped them from devaluing their currency or committing IP theft on a massive scale. Uh, and that arguably was one of the most important things that has helped their economy in the last 70 to 80 years. I mean, maybe the single most. So I think it's hard for people to look at something like that and say that was really important to China. And then they still cheat on the rules. And then say, okay, well, we're going to go ahead, and if we get into this this deal and we divest a little bit, and I'm, I know TikTok and ByteDance, and technically not the Chinese government, and but I think that that's the fear is that if you leave them a little bit of a foothold, uh, at least for members of Congress, perhaps uh, that they would exploit that. So I just wanted to add that, but thank you. Sure. So um, a question from Ben Gelman, I think, um, maybe pushes back a little bit on this. Uh, he asks, would banning TikTok play into China's hands by advancing their goal of having a decoupled internet that they can have com complete control of on their side? Who's that to? Um, uh, how about to you? 
Sure. Okay. <laughs> I don't think it plays into their hands because what they want is our data. And that's a lot of eyeballs. Look what uh, they lost over in India. They don't want to be out of that market. And I think that's part of the reason that they're they're working hard on, on this deal, whether it's going to be with Oracle or, or somebody else. You know, they, they don't want to lose the U.S. market. So I don't think that it works to their advantage at all. Um, and I also don't think that that would happen where they effectively have control of, of one part of the Internet. Um, I think that it's to, I think that it's to their advantage to to be over here, and they want that. Okay, um, uh, Josh Goland asks: uh, China is becoming a global leader in the tech industry, and it's likely that much of the technology coming from China will have many of the same privacy issues that TikTok does. Are we headed towards a future in which not just TikTok, but many of the most popular apps and technologies we use come from China? If so, what do you believe a solution to this will look like? Tighter privacy regulations, a blanket ban on apps with ties to the Chinese government. Uh, how about Sarah? I think that's a great question going forward because um, it really raises a lot of questions about whether the tools the president currently has are well are sort of well tailored to the coming challenges. Um, I mean, CFIUS is not going to be super helpful for a lot of what you just mentioned insofar as um, if there's no acquisition of a US company in order to get a foothold in the US market, it's just a Chinese app that you can download on the app store. Now you can still use IEPA potentially, um, but I do think Judge Nichols's order raises a big question mark over whether that tool is going to be available for things like TikTok or other sort of personal communications platforms if they're so characterized that way. Um, and even if those tools are available, um, I think there's a lot of questions about how tailored at the end of the day you can make an IEPA order with respect to sort of a going forward basis. Um, how do you use it? Like, can you really use it to, you know, essentially create ongoing privacy regulations or protections? So I don't know. I mean, I think it's a terrific question and I think it's a really hard one um, because the, the challenge is simply the aggregation of personal identifier information. Um, <laughs> and I think a lot of it may also be, um, does it take sort of agreement from private companies that in the, in the US that are offering these sort of um, Chinese apps for download or sale? Are there ways of controlling it that way? I don't know. Um, but it's really as much of a technical challenge as it is a legal one. And it is kind of uncharted territory, I'd say. Chuck, did you have anything to add to that one? No, I, I would just say that I, greater transparency, if that could ever be achieved, I don't expect that uh, in dealing with a lot of companies from China. Uh, but if, if that were possible, that would make it easier. <laughs> um, we have a question from Andrew Nell. Did the way the process played out with the president weighing in on which U.S. company he favored acquiring TikTok and suggesting that Treasury get a kickback off any potential sale undermine the CFIUS process? And could it open up any sale to legal challenges? Sarah? Um, so, I mean, I think like, like from the legal standpoint, um, obviously sort of TikTok will, and any sort of challenger in TikTok shoes will try to leverage whatever public statements they can um, to make their legal challenge better. At the end of the day though, I think most courts are going to look at the actual determinations um, that the president made in the form of the executive orders and the Commerce Department's findings. And so in that sense, 
Um, I'm not sure that the president's statements are quite as important, but I do think that, you know, there's also an aspect of this that is a little perhaps misportrayed in the media, at least as my sense, which is <clears throat> in most divestment situations, it's not unusual for CFIUS to like have as an option that a U.S. company needs to take over what remains of a company that's impermissible. I mean, that is an obvious cure for the problem that you don't want a foreign actor owning or controlling something that is a sensitive U.S. company or has sensitive components. Um, and in the ordinary course, I think that, of course, the government is going to have views as to which particular actors in the United States are best positioned to um, assume the mantle of protecting that information uh, and helping to effectuate the divestment because in any administration, you're going to be looking at like who is going to actually protect the information um, and, you know, carry out the mitigation agreements that are probably underlying all this. So that's the reality. I mean, again, though, like <laughs> then you see a lot of public statements that make it sort of sound much more like the process here is simply sort of picking um, companies that someone likes or doesn't like. And so I just think there's kind of a disconnect between perhaps the way that this gets portrayed in the media and the way that the process would ordinarily work. Uh, there's a question from Caleb Stevens. Um, it's become quite clear that China will not hesitate to crack down on American companies when any of their employees say anything critical about the PRC government. Um, I might also add the NBA in that question. Uh, in light of this, what could be done to prevent incidents like the Marriott Hotel employees situation in the future? Um, Chuck, you, you told that story. Do you have any thoughts about um, whether there is uh, legislation or I guess it, it, um, some other tool that could uh, help avert that kind of problem? That's a really good question. And I think that the only way to avert that problem is through, through public opinion and, and public pressure, frankly, to let people know that that's just something that's not acceptable. And I, I don't think you legislate that. I'm not sure how you would do it. And I'm, even if there were a way to do it, that it would be a, an appropriate function of the United States Congress. This is part of the problem when doing business uh, you know, over in China. And this is how they leverage people, uh, companies, et cetera. And the MBA is a great example. And Senator Blackburn has written a couple letters to the MBA with you know, concerns about their relationship with China and in particular, their business relationship and how it could affect, um, you know, affect actions that they take and, and so forth. And of course, we saw that the tweet from uh, October of 2019, uh, Daryl Morey, Houston Rockets, a pro Hong Kong kind of backing there and it had significant backlash in that market for the NBA in China is a $4 billion market. So I just think that we have to support American companies and, and support them, but also let them know that they, they can't back down. And I know it's difficult sometimes, but they, they just have to hold tight and they have to stand strong. And, and the right thing to do was not, it was, they should not have fired that employee. So I'll just say that. Um, I want to go back to um, one of the first questions, which is from Shashank Chidi. How does TikTok's data collection compare to other similar apps like Snapchat, Instagram, et cetera? So these are, of course, U.S. companies that are collecting the data. I think the question um, 
while a factual one kind of invites, uh, in my mind, a question about um, legislation surrounding privacy and data security. So you could imagine that even if we are not as concerned uh, about Snapchat and Instagram having lots of our personal information, um, we might be worried A, about them selling it to people and, and B, about having it get hacked, having it get stolen. You and I, I think both suffered from that OPM hack. Um, so sh sh should we, it, let's say that the data collection is similar. Um, does that suggest uh, that we need some additional protections about, um, about data at the, on these US companies? Uh, Chuck, can I start with you on that? Sure. I would think that, that it does. And, and Senator Blackburn has introduced legislation in the past. She actually um, has been doing this for several years and it requires an opt-in type of framework and so forth to, to kind of add more transparency. I think that there's probably a, a, quite a, a parallel between the data that is collected by US companies such as Snapchat, and Instagram, and Facebook, and, and whatever is collected by TikTok. Um, the, the big difference that I was trying to drive home is you know, who's really in control of the company? And I think that's that's the question when you're dealing with you know any type of Chinese entity. You know, is it more of a state-owned enterprise, or are they kind of on their own? But to answer the question, uh, Professor Deeks, uh, yes, I think that that's something that a lot of people in the United States have concern about: is their privacy. What is done with this data? Uh, the privacy agreements that they opt into. I mean, heck, you need a team of attorneys to go ahead and read that. I mean, they ought to have it. You know, be a little bit shorter and more comprehensible, I think, for uh, for people, and that would make make things a little bit easier and also calm the uh, minds of people who have suspicions about what's being done with their information. Sarah, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think that's a really uh, I could you know the Privacy Act implications for U.S. companies are like a whole really a can of worms um, that is really interesting right now. Um, but a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, I do think the mere fact that companies in the US are collecting your data sort of it raises questions as sort of Chuck mentioned about the nature of the agreements, are those permissible sort of contracts or people doing it voluntarily? That's kind of a different kettle of fish um, than what we've been talking about in terms of um, a foreign power simply getting access to the information, whether it is voluntarily relinquished or not. Um, but I do think the interesting thing for U.S. privacy law is, is something you touched on, which is the possibility that U.S. companies are going to get hacked. Because um, I think it's a really interesting sort of cutting edge legal question of how, how can the federal government, if at all, compel companies to take actions to protect themselves against hacking? Um, can companies get sued for not protecting themselves enough? Um, what kinds of federal legislation would be permissible um, to implement with respect to um, putting in place various protections, especially since, you know, that's both a legal and a practical concern. Like the second you set up a framework that is fairly detailed with respect to like, here's a good uh, blueprint for not getting hacked, then it's completely obsolete. So it's kind of a, you know, it's just a whack-a-mole game, I think. Um, and the other interesting question is, a sort of jurisdictional one for federal agencies. There's been sort of a debate going on about whether the FTC should be doing this, whether a different agency should be doing this. Who is actually in charge within the federal government of ensuring that US companies are 
um, as robust as they need to be in preventing themselves from getting hacked. Because I think everyone has seen a lot of very, very serious hacks involving hack, like a very, very useful information that foreign actors would love to get their hands on. Um, but, you know, this is a hard area for federal regulation. Um, and so I'm not super optimistic that we have a lot of great answers here, unfortunately. This actually um, feeds into a question from uh, Richard Zierer. Apologies if I pronounced your last name wrong. Um, why is it the government's place to regulate any of this? Why aren't people responsible for knowing the terms and conditions of the social media they use? So I think, um, as my answer perhaps just suggested, I, I do think it's a different answer potentially with respect to are you simply talking about people within the United States voluntarily giving their information up to a company operating in the United States? Um, in which case you can kind of ask questions about the scope of Congress's commerce class power, um, stuff like that. Um, and you know, how far can you go in imposing liability under new sort of theories of torch, for instance, for data breaches and the injury to you, you know, if there's no monetary injury, stuff like that. Um, I do think it's different when we're talking about the government trying to prevent a foreign actor from seizing information that while you might have voluntarily relinquished it to a platform, um, you almost certainly haven't been like, yes, I would love it if like, you know, Russian hackers or like the Chinese government or other, you know, state actors who you probably don't want to be aiding um, have all of your personal details. And so I think there's questions about like whether you're consenting to that. And even if you consented to that, um, you know, I think it is a a different question when the United States is saying, okay, there is an aggregated threat, uh, a threat from aggregating all that data um, that foreign actors are in fact trying to use some of these platforms as a bit of kind of a Trojan horse uh, to use it for something very different than what, what it purports to be doing. So it's not just fun and games of dancing, it is in fact a way of building up a picture uh, uh, for pinpointing both um, particular people and exercising influence over them and also potentially influencing just public discourse in the United States or you know misinformation campaigns. Um, this is a, a, a question about, it, it reminds me of the, the Huawei situation, although it's not about Huawei. The question is, can China still threaten US national security if allies in other free countries, particularly NATO members, decide to continue using tech like TikTok? What tools does the US have to counter Chinese tech influence abroad? Um, so as, as I'm sure you know, this has come up in the, um, in the Huawei 5G setting where the US uh, has tried to uh, uh, aggressively, I don't mean that uh, pejoratively, aggressively tried to persuade other countries that they too should be nervous about Huawei um, for many of the same reasons that we've been talking about here tonight. Um, is TikTok like Huawei and that we should be worried that, um, you know, the UK and the Netherlands and Germany continue to let their uh, citizens and maybe even their military use it? Chuck? Well, first off, I would just know that, you know, there are some differences, right? Huawei is a telecommunications company and, uh, you know, TikTok's a technology company. So right, right there, there's a difference. But this is what I was getting at when I was talking about Chinese theory of, of encirclement and strategic encirclement. So I would argue that there is a danger to our national security. China has something called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is, is sort of like their a digital Silk Road of the 21st century. That's not my term. Somebody else is not going to take credit for that. But 
Um, it's a $1.3 trillion initiative. And what they're doing is they're simply going around to countries and saying, hey, we'll build your 5G network and you know, we'll do it maybe for, for X amount of dollars or we'll give you uh, some financing to go ahead and, and, and complete this infrastructure project. Uh, and I'm going to. Say, I want to just touch on two things quick. 5G is really important for those of you who may or, or may not know about it. I don't know how much everybody realizes or understands about 5G. 5G is different from 4G because it's about machines. 4G is about devices. But if somebody can overtake a 5G network, and this is something I talked to uh, General Spalding about. I mean, imagine uh, you know, like somebody overtaking a uh, an airplane or a pack of drones or or, or a vehicle. Maybe. So many things are connected these days. Uh, 5G is extremely important. There is actually an example. Um, they call it depth trap diplomacy. Uh, and the government of Sri Lanka was having a port built, and they couldn't obtain financing for it. And this was back in, I think, in the early mid-2000s. China came in and said, we'll offer you a loan. They offered to finance 70% of it, and they gave them a 6.3% interest rate. Well, pretty soon, the Sri Lankan government was paying about 95% of their revenue was going towards debt. And so the Chinese came to own the port and they now have it with a 99-year uh, lease and about 15,000 acres of land. And so that's not unusual uh, in these instances. And there, I think Italy has actually accepted Huawei you know, to go ahead and, and build 5G technology. Is a quick, interesting story. I was in Portugal last summer and I saw all these Huawei pictures everywhere. And I had my Uber driver had, I think, a Huawei phone. And I was kind of just, just joking with him a little bit. And I said, hey, you know, that's that phone's probably listening to you and doing this. And he said, you know, he told me, he said, well, Google's probably doing the same thing. And I just kind of laughed and uh, I didn't say anything back. But um, anyway, I do think it's a problem. And, uh, you know, I keep going back a little bit to war. China views it differently. I'd encourage people to read a book by a PLA general that was a lieutenant colonel, actually, that was written in 2009. It's called The China Dream. And it essentially talks about how the Chinese want to fight this, this marathon war, 100-year marathon, uh, which is also the title of a book by Michael Pillsbury. And they'll win without even firing a shot. And that's the goal. But they're studying, studying our weaknesses. And if they have to, you know, they'll be able to go ahead and uh, uh, fight us asymmetrically on a military level. But the fear is the strategic encirclement. And that's why I, I mentioned that game, Wei Qi, that they play. That's a very famous game uh, in China. And it gives you insight into how they think, which is much different than how we think. Um, I have a question that I think is for Sarah. Uh, it's from Ben Elrond. Is there any in-camera review of the existence or extent of the national security threat? Uh, or is the presidential determination dispositive? Uh, so the presidential determination is dispositive, um, at least as you pose the question, in the sense that no, there's no sort of in-camera review of the underlying findings. Um, but I do think this does go back to something I flagged at the outset with respect to the Scythius process and changes to it, which is it used to be the case that it really was sort of the, the determination is there. The president has said there's a national security threat, and that's kind of all you're going to get out of the government. Um, and the Rawls decision from the D.C. Circuit requiring at a minimum, um, and this is sort of similar to the uh, designation of particular nationals on um, various other for various other sanctions programs, um, that you need to at least um, provide 
unclassified sort of hints using public information that, that the government's relying on um, an opportunity to respond. So I think maybe that's like not quite a middle ground between the two parts of your question, um, but it is a, a proxy for a very small level of review of, you know, can there be more engagement with respect to what the threat actually is. It's just hard because a lot of this is incredibly classified and the whole premise of the process is uh, there's a foreign power involved, so you don't want to give them the classified information. Um, and even the in-camera review is going to be a hard sort of proxy for the way the discussions are going to be happening between the agencies that are part of Pacifius or, you know, the rest of the intelligence community um, underlying AIPA decisions. So. Uh, I'm just going to take a, a moderator's prerogative here to follow up on that. Um, while I do, of course, appreciate that the um, some aspects of the uh, the underlying information driving the executive's decisions are classified, might be sources and method issues. Um, we want we don't want to tell China how we know everything we know, but I do wonder whether the U.S. government could share a little bit more. They sometimes can share more when they're really kind of pushed to, uh, in a way that would help clarify for the American public um, what some of the actual concerns are, um, maybe share more with allies, maybe share more with Congress. Um, uh, whether you think that's uh, helpful, necessary, or impossible, um, whether, whether there would be any advantage to sharing a little bit more about what precisely we know. So I guess I see this as kind of like a two-part question of one is what what's the legal answer in terms of what the law should require or not require? Um, and two is what's the kind of policy answer or maybe like that sort of um, political science-y kind of answer of, is there a benefit disclosing more information so people sort of buy into the process more? Uh, and I think those are two kind of different calculations because I think with respect to the legal answer, um, Presidents traditionally of both parties like very jealously guard their prerogatives over protecting classified information. And that's usually for pretty good reasons, which is, you know, the more you start opening up the process to um, other actors having some sort of legal entitlement to um, look behind the scenes, it's sort of something, it's a Pandora's box type, type situation where it can be very hard um, to keep that information <laughs> secure after that. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of that's kind of the way presidents have treated it for a long time. And as a sort of legal matter, presidents have enjoyed a lot of success in the Supreme Court with those types of arguments with respect to the president's powers. Um, should that be the answer in terms of, you know, should presidents voluntarily kind of relinquish some of that power? Um, or is there a kind of a public transparency benefit to doing it? Um, I could see individual cases where the answer is yes, because I think we all like to think that if people had a, if, if people could only understand the United States government's perspective, um, people will be more sympathetic to the way the decisions are made. Um, you know, and that's an appealing thesis. I think the downside is there's also a big risk that um, a little bit of information can also kind of be misleading in some ways, where you sort of get an incomplete picture of the depth of information that the government's gathered or, you know, particular ways in which the information has been validated. Um, and so I think it's a real pickle. I mean, I, I think the traditional view from a lot of people from a policy perspective is more transparency would make people more comfortable with the process. Um, but I also think there are costs to that kind of policy position. 
Um, we are getting short on time. Um, I'll, I'll give uh, both Chuck and Sarah uh, just a final sentence or two if, if you have any uh, concluding thoughts as we go off and uh, try to remove TikTok from our telephones. Sarah, do you have any, any parting words? Um, I think it's just stay tuned. It's one of the most interesting um, sort of, again, like microcosms for this whole area of law, both in law and policy for national security um, nerds that I've seen in a long time. And so if you're interested in it, the briefing uh, that the government and TikTok do is actually pretty accessible um, and has really good summaries of the current state of play with respect to what the government is willing to disclose on you know, in plain English, how it's portraying the Commerce Department findings and stuff. So I would encourage you to look that up online. It's pretty easy to find. Great, Chuck, yeah. parting comments? Sure, uh, just first off, thank you, UVA, uh, UVA FedSoc, Professor Deeks for doing all this. Uh, I think it's been great and I've really enjoyed it and uh, enjoyed listening to Sarah. I, I would say one thing, um, just take with you. Today, TikTok announced that they were going to be issuing election guidance uh, for their users. And so they're going to direct you to what they consider to be uh, verified sources of information uh, that are reliable in the U.S. election. And I just thought that that was an interesting development, uh, maybe just something else to sort of put in the back of your mind as you think about everything that we said. Great. Well, thank you both uh, very much. This was incredibly um, interesting and educational. I'm sorry we weren't able to get to all of the questions, but there were excellent questions um, asked and uh, some un remain unanswered, but uh, we appreciate everybody attending this as well. So um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much for having me.